2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to City Limits. Um, It's a weird feeling this morning because Kevin's not in the middle of rushing in the door, carrying bags of papers and a (laughs) pot of tea and cups. (laughs) Apologising
1: for his lateness.
2: (laughs) It's um, Meg Kimber here and I'm with Eugenia.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: And... um, Eugenia how are you feeling this is our moment (laughs) (laughs) the training wheels are off
1: yeah I feel like it's my first day at school or something
2: (laughs) as I was riding my bike here this morning I was like it's kind of like um, when the the mother bird pushes the baby birds out of the nest, <laughs> 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 and you and then, feel like you're in free fall for the first couple of seconds. Pretty much, like you're like, uh, yeah. D- are the wings gonna open and and work, or will we just <laughs> fall to the ground in a heap? <laughs> we'll see,
1: won't we? I suspect we're gonna be okay.
2: We managed to make ourselves our own pot of tea this morning. Yeah, that was the first so, challenge.
1: Pour like that. To pour a
2: cup. <laughs> There you go, and I'll pass the teapot to yeah, you. Yeah, thank
1: you. How was your um, journey into the studio this morning?
2: Um, cold and exciting. Just the this kind of weather is quite. Uh, I'm I'm quite used to it, and I quite like it. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, your Tassie days, hey. Mm-hmm. How about you?
1: Yeah, it was good. Freezing. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> we have a guest coming into the studio today, um, so we're gonna have a little rundown of a few pieces of news that we're interested in.
1: <laughs> Perhaps a little bit more, um, a little bit different to what Kevin usually does. I tried.
2: About. ten. I did a whole 10 minutes this morning looking at the Herald Sun, just going like, <laughs> what can I say about this? I was like, think of something ironic or satirical <laughs> <laughs> to t- a take
1: on this. I was like, I can't. <laughs> yeah, see, I took a completely different track. I just got my nerd on and looked up some topics that Which I was Which I'm really in. excited about. It sounds like good <laughs> topics.
2: And then about 20 minutes into the show, we've got a guest.
1: Yeah, so Tristan Davies is coming in from the Melbourne Heritage Action Group um, to talk to us about heritage in Melbourne generally and specifically the Campbell Arcade Project. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. Which is where um, the Metro are uh, planning to build a tunnel through.
1: Yeah, so it's that space that connects, it's like the underpass of Flinders Street Station that connects it to sort of DeGrave Street.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, the yeah the Metro Tunnel Station that's going to be built near Flinders Street mm. is actually going to be connected to... By a new tunnel to Flinders Street that kind of cuts through Campbell Arcade, if I understand correctly.
3: Mm. So it's
1: a it's a important heritage space that's potentially going to be undergoing a lot of change through that project. So we're going to hear all about that and how it affects the small businesses that are in there currently. Sounds
2: good. And I didn't know that there was such a thing as Heritage Action Melbourne. Mm. And so we could maybe Chris yeah. Tristan on that a little bit. Yeah, let's well. find
1: out what they do and see if people can get can get involved.
2: Yeah. So what have we got for news?
1: Yeah, so um my first exciting piece of news it is that is technology related and transport related. Nice. So this Melbourne group is apparently developing an app that will help people to find parking in the CBD. Mm, people who drive? Yeah, people what? who drive into the CBD. An,
3: a strange <laughs> breed, I know.
1: Um but the theory is that that will help reduce congestion generally in the CBD because, you know, yep. they reckon people while people are circling looking for parks, it yep. actually adds incrementally to the yeah. To the congestion, as you can imagine. Yep. So, um, yeah, the, the really interesting thing to me is that it's using data that the Melbourne City Council has made available very recently, late last year. Oh. So they just released basically a whole bunch of raw information from the um from sensors that they build into the ground of the parking spaces around the CBD. Ah,
2: uh, which they usually use to give people parking tickets.
1: I assume I so. Know. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to oh. look into that a bit more. But yeah, there's okay. four thousand three hundred of them embedded in the. In the concrete around the CBD. Isn't that fascinating? I didn't know that. Mm, no, neither.
2: And so they usually have kept that to themselves and now they're making yeah. it open to people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so there's a, um, I think there's a group from Melbourne Uni who's using that to develop the app now.
2: I think that sounds like a really good idea.
1: Mm, yeah, so not it's though. still in still in trial phase apparently, but yeah, really promising.
2: Um, one of the things that I've noticed is, I'm not I don't drive now, but if I did in the past... Um, I would want to know like when I was going to the place, if mm. there was a park and not, not if there was a park, cause you just assume mm. that there is, but what kind of parking there is in which mm. areas, because that I think people are often driving around going, Oh, this is all one hour. This is all one hour. Mm. This is all one hour. Like if you, why isn't there just a, like, it's a map online mm. that you can look at and, and know like mm. where the one hour areas are whether the two hour or totally. all day or whatever
1: yeah because you have no way of knowing unless you're there yeah because I don't yeah. know about you but that's the main factor that stops me from driving places <laughs> often that I hate parking and I hate looking <laughs> for parks I often feel like by the time I I circle around a couple of times and find somewhere I might as well just ride my bike and get there faster
2: absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. by the time you find a parker usually you're just like if you've driven to try to save time, yeah, you're definitely still going to be late, yeah,
1: yeah. I guess if this ends up if this kind of app ends up encouraging people to drive to the CBD, yeah, that might have the opposite effect of what they intend
2: <laughs> a bit of an adverse effect,
1: yeah, yeah. Anyway,
2: it will be interesting to see what happens,
1: yeah. Let's keep it updated. How about you? Have you found anything cool in the news this week?
2: Um, well. It might not come as a surprise to people that I actually just don't read the paper,
1: which is why every
2: time Kevin's like, and what about this news? I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, But The Age has, here's the sound of rustling paper that we're used to. Um, The Age has a little bit about Victoria's housing prices, Mm. which is really no surprise to anybody. Mm. You know, who lives, <laughs> here. <laughs> lives here or anywhere in Australia, mm. even in Hobart, which is my hometown where I moved from last year. Um, apparently, housing prices in Hobart are worse than Sydney, I think, per like in relation to what the average income is, right? And they're facing a lot of housing insecurity, right? Um, a lack of housing vacancies, and just the cost of, of houses are, are huge, and that yeah, means that right. the cost of rent is like beyond what most people can afford there. Mm. So apparently um, they have one of the highest rates of people without secure housing. Mm. Um, That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the Age reports um, that since... So it says, since Labor won the 2014 election, the city has added about 400,000 people Roughly the population of Canberra. In that time, the median house price has risen 50% from 610,000 in the December 2014 quarter
1: to 914,000
2: in the March 2018 quarter. What a jump! Yeah. The growth in housing costs has been unmatched by any other capital city in Australia, including Sydney. So maybe that makes me not correct about Hobart, but (laughs) yeah, it's an interesting kind of... And there's um, groups that are sort of trying to, you know, do different types of housing, Mm. Um, like social housing, which we talk about here, which Mm. is unfortunately put forward as an alternative to public housing Mm -hmm. as the governments um, try to encourage uh, private or charities to, mm. you know, yeah. care private for people who private need Private organisations to provide homes, yeah. Um, on that topic, um, there is a campaign happening at the moment to um, put pressure on the Andrews government, which is obviously the Victorian state government, I learned after I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to to stop the, um, what's called the Public Housing Renewal Program, which is actually what we've talked about on the show before, yeah. about um, actually pushing people out of their homes and not providing alternatives mm. and then replacing what was public housing with this social housing mm-hmm. idea. Um, so this group is, is um, asking... Basically, the Greens have a motion in Parliament that they're going to table Wednesday the 6th of June. And um, so people... The opportunity here is to contact the Andrews government and it's specifically the Public Housing Renewal Program and um, so actually get in touch with the opposition MPs next week from Monday the 28th of May by email, phone or text. So, um, yeah, okay, there's uh, Liberal politicians that would need to vote with the motion, with the Greens on the motion, Hmm. if they're going to um, put it forward to support the public housing um, mm. network in, in Victoria. Yeah. So, so we're, we're trying to
1: encourage those Liberal MPs to vote. With yeah. the Greens, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, you can get more information on the Facebook page, which is the Public Housing Defence Network uh, Facebook page. Yeah. yeah.
1: Perfect opportunity to exercise our democratic rights <laughs> <laughs> by putting pressure
3: on the <laughs> government.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of another article that I read um, earlier in the week uh, that was in the Australian, mm-hmm. um, but it was profiling Rob Adams, who's uh, the um, kind of well known city of Melbourne urban planner that was responsible for a lot of the development in the 80s and 90s that contributed to Melbourne kind of winning these most livable city accolades years, oh. years in a row
2: he's a Melbourne person? Like yeah. He lives in Melbourne? Yeah, he, yep. he
1: was the head of urban planning at the city of Melbourne. Oh. Ah. And so he's just, um, he's just talking about those kind of housing dynamics and uh, mm. how the, um, the sprawling nature of Melbourne's urban planning or lack of planning yep. um, is having such negative effects. So yeah. he's saying that um, uh, every indication uh, is that all the symptoms Melbourne is getting around family violence, poor health, Obesity, extended hours of travel to work are all symptoms of a city that has grown too big at too low density. Mm. So he's arguing that um, we should be densifying the city, but not just inside Mm. the CBD, uh, but also in the middle ring suburbs that have Mm. traditionally been really resistant to... Mm. higher density because that's where a lot of um, powerful voting constituents are and those kind of things are really unpopular Mm. so uh, he's done some research and he's saying that uh, it would cost the city as a whole 110 billion dollars more if it sprawls outward Mm. than if that same housing was provided in those middle ring suburbs interesting yeah and that's just um, that difference is a result of the costs of building new infrastructure like power and water and roads Mm. Uh, And also increased health costs, so, Mm you know, hospitalisation and and all the health issues that are associated with driving a car everywhere rather than walking and getting public transport.
2: Yeah, because there was a study about um, people having, like, significantly improved health sort of signifiers if they lived within 10, 15 minutes of a local corner store yeah Have wow you, yeah no are i haven't heard right about out? that i mean it, it seems yeah.
1: like instinctively it seems yeah to be you walk true. to the
2: shop instead yeah. of driving to the supermarket yeah 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 totally um in,
1: in the neighborhood where i live there's all these little signs saying oh the shops are only a 15 minute walk away don't drive <laughs> you can <Yeah>. walk <laughs> Just a little reminder
2: <laughs> um yeah um it's interesting how different planners look at this issue of density Mm. Um, because, um, David Holmgren, who's the permaculture, um, guru Mm. has done a, has like recently put out a book, um, retrofitting suburbia, Suburbia. Mm. yeah, where he kind of like argues sort of against density, Mm. but for sort of decentralizing lives. Mm. So instead of the suburbs being these places where people sleep Mm -hmm. and then wake up take a car or, or best case scenario, take public transport to the CBD mm-hmm. basically and spend eight hours or nine hours there and then come home mm. that like suburb- suburbs have all this usable land because most of the houses are like in amongst this sprawl mm. where you have like a block of land as big as your house behind your house mm. and a nature strip out the front of your house, which is half that size again and basically could be, productive land.
1: Yeah, productive in, in different ways, like yeah. growing your own food and exactly. collecting energy and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that, yeah it's a complex thing because de- densification doesn't always mean centralization right? Like uh, mm-hmm. you could potentially make little denser clusters mm-hmm. in various strategic points around the outer suburbs as well, right?
3: Mm.
1: Um, but, mm. yeah, what he's saying seems to be kind of a different different idea, different yeah. vision of what I the think, city could be. Yeah,
2: yeah which, I mean... Like you say, maybe there's a bit of both that could happen. Mm. Those spaces could be denser. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess I I wonder if if anyone's done the maths to see, like if if everyone in Melbourne lived in a Uh suburban house with Uh a garden out the back, Uh how much space would we need and what the implications of that would be on like transport Mm -hmm. and um, housing affordability. Like if Rob Adams is saying, that you know, that sprawl has all these effects. Uh-huh. On affordability as well as health and yeah, all that. I wonder if if that would still apply. Mm. I think our guest might be here. Awesome. Yeah,
2: let's go to a song and see what we can find out. Great. Okay, you're back on city limits on 3CR, and that was Train Round the Bend by Steve Connolly.
1: What a, what a cracker of a song. <laughs> well,
2: actually, I was trying to play Travelling Man by <laughs> Christina Green, but it wouldn't play, so I had to go to the next song on the list. But I was trying to play Travelling Man in honour of Kevin. I know he's listening. <laughs> and he's probably, I'm just imagining, he actually said he's going to spend all day
1: in bed, but I bet he's probably
2: out just travelling around. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: no, having a nice relaxing day. Cool. So uh, we're about to talk to Tristan Davies, who is in the studio with us. And Tristan's the president of Melbourne Heritage Action Group. Hi, Tristan.
0: Morning. How are you?
1: Good, thanks. Thanks for coming in.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, cool. It's really good to have you here. Um, so so tell us a little bit about Melbourne Heritage Action Group. What do you guys do?
0: Um, well, the group really started um, in the fight against Lonsdale House, which was a building being demolished for the Emporium shopping mall mm. about 10 years ago. Um,
2: <laughs> I guess that didn't work. Didn't, didn't go so well, no. But um, it was really
0: shocking because it was a heritage-listed building and no one seemed to care, basically, oh. and all these Layers of development and government and, you know. Yeah. Um, the other issue was really in a lot of suburbs around Melbourne, you do have a lot of residence groups, you know, old ladies that all argue about every <laughs> little development, <laughs> trees knocked down or a house, whatever it is. Um, but the city of Melbourne, in a way, is kind of owned by everyone in the community, but there's no one specifically living there that was long-term enough to you know, be keeping an eye on things. Yeah, okay. So we started that group up um, with that idea of looking specifically at the CBD and heritage and this really diverse, like, sort of heritage that belongs to everyone in Victoria, really, yeah. um, because of how the city's developed.
1: Yeah. Mm. So, so is the idea that the group helps kind of block development that's um, that sort of threatens to destroy heritage?
0: Yeah, well... Um, you know, you know how capitalism works. Um, blocking things isn't always possible. But we try to, yeah, basically raising media awareness. We had a particularly big social presence, social media presence and media presence back then also because of the age of most of our group. Um, uh-huh. I think before then there was a real sort of idea that heritage advocacy was um, an older issue and a conservative issue. Yeah, right. Um, which is something we've tried to change a lot. And also the, the National Trust themselves have really been – changing, I think, that a lot with some younger staff and more progressive values. Yeah, great. Mm. Um, So, that's an important part of it as well.
2: Was there previously a kind of, um, it was sort of conceptualised like heritage, um, like maintaining heritage was this kind of stuffy thing where if you wanted to do anything, the heritage um, group would be on you and they'd be like, you can't do this, you can't change a window or whatever. Is that sort of the... Yeah, I think that's
0: actually still a perception that's um, being fought, particularly... Uh, Less so in the CBD, but definitely in neighbourhoods and things. People think Mm -hmm. a heritage-listed house means...
2: Trouble, basically. You can't,
0: you know, wash your windows. Um, (laughs) Like, we had this problem. Well, um, the group in, I believe it was Beau Morris recently, when the council backed off on a... uh, listing of various modernist houses from the 50s and 60s just because mm. owners thought if this has a heritage overlay, it means we can't sell it and it's mm. going to be falling apart. Mm. Um, but of course, heritage definitely doesn't mean that, except in very rare circumstances.
2: Yeah. And so the Heritage Action Group focuses just on the city of Melbourne.
0: Yeah. Um, right? Particularly the CBD, Central Business yeah. District, and like bits of the outskirts, like South Bank, we help out on some issues there. Nice. Um, collaborating with people like the South Bank Residence Group and... Other interested groups like that.
2: This is a really good point that because the people who live in the CBD, like it's not really an area where people usually live, but some people do, I guess. In
0: yeah, it's very transient. Mm. I mean, there are a small amount of people that have lived there since the 90s that have that community. Mm. Um, on the other hand, though, it's mostly sort of students that are living mm. short-term or various short-term professional people. Mm. Mm. Um, so most of the people that do live in the city centre that I've talked to are very supportive of us and they're usually more long-term Types um, that own property there, but mm. yeah, generally, yeah, it's because it's such a mixture of offices and commercial.
2: Mm. And how much of the work that you guys do is um, private, he- like housing type heritage issues, and how much is like businesses that are?
0: Uh, very much businesses, yeah. or more specifically, the issues we're facing are generally developers um, who buy a building and then want
2: to knock it down. Want to
0: knock it down, yeah.
1: Mm. And so, what are the um, what are some of the values of preserving that heritage?
0: In terms of what's good about it.
1: Yeah. Like, why do you guys think it's important um, to keep those well, so many,
0: So many things, really. Um, I mean, besides, obviously, the aesthetic of living in a city, and um, we could talk for hours about how the aesthetics of your streets make your psycho- psychological state, I suppose. Mm. Um, so there is that aspect. There's the aspect of history. I think Melbourne has a very rich history, um, despite a short history, I think. Mm. um you know the modern history of melbourne is quite complex um on different layers um there's also just like the fact that it's part of living in a modern city it's not just about keeping the odd pretty landmark here and there as a museum piece it's really about how we live in a city Mm. um specifically in melbourne it's having these small spaces um warehouse spaces you know little Mm. precincts that make really interesting communities and businesses possible
3: Mm.
2: yeah it's a really good point and um, one of the issues that we mentioned that we were going to talk about today was the Campbell Arcade. Yeah, How have you guys been involved with that?
0: Well, that's a perfect example of mm. that. Um, we essentially got involved by um, finding it in the plans. We I think it was me that found that buried um, in the documents that they wanted to knock it down, um, where previously they'd made it quite clear what they were doing. And to be fair to the Metro Authority, they have been fairly transparent, although not it's not like they're actually really being transparent in the process, but they will tell you what they're doing, that yeah. makes sense. Mm. Tell you what they're um, doing rather
1: than ask what should be done. Yeah. Yep.
0: So um, we found that and did some more research and got together with the guys at Sticky particularly who were really keen on that, obviously, because it's mm. their... Um,
1: Just explain what Sticky is briefly.
0: Sticky Institute is a, um, a zine shop that's existed in the Campbell Arcade for bit over 20 years now, Mm. um, alongside other creative businesses in that arcade and some older businesses too, Mm. um, hairdressers and Mm. newsagents. Yeah.
2: yeah. And it's a big part of, it's one of, isn't it one of the biggest zine distributors in like the Southern Hemisphere or something like that?
0: It is. Yeah, totally. I think it's the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. So people come here from Southeast Asia and all over Australia. Mm. Um, It was also heritage related. It was actually on the United Nations nomination for Melbourne being a UNESCO city of literature. Wow, um, Which is really? a big honour for us. and yeah.
2: yeah, because it's such a fertile space. Like, I've been in there and it's so full of people's ideas yeah. and creative work and writing and poetry. And, Absolutely, yeah. Like, just stuff that is not going to be distributed pretty much any other way, but it has such a lot of value in terms of...
0: Yeah, and you're yeah. not going to find it in a modern office podium or a yeah. um, no. ticketed... Uh, railway station aren't you yeah.
1: <laughs> what, what do you think it, it is about that kind of space in Campbell Arcade that allows those creative unusual businesses to thrive there is it cheap rent maybe yeah. it's partly know. cheap rent it is a bit yeah. smelly down there
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, I think it'd be it'd be great to have um, you know uh, Luke from Sticky and others uh, weighing in on that but I think yeah, yeah it is that cheap rent it's the historical character yeah. you know these Types of businesses like that, they love the old bricks and the Art Deco columns and all those types of attributes, that sort of surrounding that make a really great space.
2: Mm. Yeah. And is the Campbell Arcade itself heritage listed?
0: That's the other thing. It is on the Victorian Heritage Register um, alongside Flinders Street Station. So it should have the highest level of protection. It shouldn't be touched. Yeah. It's one of those cases where most buildings in the CBD and in general in Melbourne are on a local planning scheme. So... You know, keep the front half and do some changes, that's fine, Um, as long as it's, you know, um, in keeping with various attributes you want. But um, the state heritage really should be for things that we keep intact. It's like the Block Arcade and it's like those big, very intact historic um, places, which the Campbell Arcade is one of.
2: Yeah, because you can't, I mean, you can't really keep a facade of the Campbell Arcade. It is
0: the arcade. No, the plan is to essentially knock down half of it, which is, bad enough because it's a it's an arcade it mm. has two sides
3: <laughs> um
0: and you know putting ticket barriers in this place it's been also a social um meeting yeah. place for decades and that's it's a
1: public space right you can go in there and yeah. buying a ticket yeah. well
0: yeah at least in terms of yeah i don't know about the legality <laughs> of public versus private yeah. but it's definitely a public it's space yeah um and that's that's the other issue really is that cultural heritage hasn't been on the radar it's been academic views of Oh, this building has a Renaissance Revival style that's perfectly <laughs> intact. Therefore, it's fine. Or cases like the Palace Theatre, for instance, where it had three different styles overlapping. That was basically trashed by heritage experts because of that mm. reason. Yeah, right. Ignoring the cultural aspect and the significance of people's experiences. Mm. Um, so that's like a that's a really big issue where and other groups like the National Trust are fighting about at the moment.
2: Mm. And what do you guys uh, at this at this point? Where is the uh the progression of this movement to kind of like change the campbell arcade demolish it and put a, a tunnel through it is it gonna happen
0: um i'm not sure at this stage it's yeah. one of these things where they i did say it was transparent in what mm. they say they're gonna do or what they say oh we might change our mind you know it's like mm. they pretty much have it set in stone mm. um so there haven't there hasn't been a lot of movement on that recently i believe sticky has been talking to them about them sort of placating them with um, other places to relocate to, yep. um, but this is quite a long process. I don't believe they're going to have any decisions, and there's all these engineering uh, issues which they hadn't actually addressed um, beforehand. Um, I believe actually when I went in with the guy from Sticky, we found an entire build uh, sort of room behind with plant equipment and things that weren't on their drawings. So. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, I'm not sure exactly how long the process is. It's Especially at state government level, it's often just closed doors, decisions are made. Yeah.
3: And mm. I
2: think that's one of the big things, isn't it, about kind of um, uh, getting the input from the people who are going to be affected. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the problems with people when they lose trust in these processes mm. is because the consultation, the idea of consultation doesn't happen in
0: in practice. Totally. It's yeah. um mm-hmm. it's the same with the Queen Victoria Market in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. whether you're for or against that, the way the consultation was handled was essentially like I, I literally went to a meeting where all these heritage professionals and like advocators and people who'd lived at the market for 50, 60 years were put in a room and said, "Um look, we have some pictures here. We're going to pin them up on the wall so you can share your Um, thoughts on it was like a kindergarten exercise (laughs) and that's that's sort of yeah that's sort of where consultation is for the most part you can't object to things if you know the language Mm. but that's not it that's not easy either I I don't even know the language after doing it for years fully Mm. Um, so yeah there is that aspect for sure where consultation just means we're doing this and you're going to feel a bit better about it, maybe.
2: Mm. Mm. Do you want picture A or picture B? Yeah. Like, you can choose between, like, yeah. blue, a blue shed or a pink shed. Or yeah.
1: This, yeah. Is what, this is what we've done. If you really hate it, tell us now. Rather than, <laughs> what yeah. do you want to do in this place? And then a
0: very nicely worded paragraph explaining why you're wrong. Yeah. Um, which was probably pre- <laughs> pre-made.
1: Yeah, totally. And then what happens as a result of those consultations, obviously, is anyone's yeah. guess.
0: I mean, that's that's hard as well because you can't always... Um, With these issues, it can't just be about popularism, you know, um, there needs to be some kind of decision by professionals and people at different levels of government. But of course, yeah, it's a balancing act, which some governments get right, some, you know, particular issues it gets right, sometimes it's not.
1: Do you know know anything about the, um, like, the legal structure around this? Does the state of Victoria have anything in place saying you know, for really huge, important projects like the Metro Tunnel or the Queen Vic Market, is there an obligation for them to consult people who are Um, affected?
0: There's a lot of overlapping complexities with the size of a development and who the authority is. So with the Metro Authority, um, it's not just a... Application by a private business, it's like this metro authority um, Mm. versus Heritage Victoria versus the planning minister versus the transport minister. Mm. So it gets very complicated there. Um, Mm. And I think that's part of the issue. If this had been perhaps like a a ministerial decision by the planning minister, Mm. there'd be more scope for saying, oh, we're probably going to get objections. But because it was a Mm. uh, more transport led decision, statewide, yeah. um, There wasn't really any thought that that would occur because of different cultures within departments, maybe.
2: Oh, so, and because it's seen as, like, really crucial infrastructure. Yeah. It yeah, has, and that, that's
0: the yeah. argument. And mm. it's, um, you know, it's not necessarily a correct argument because mm. there are ways of doing different things. There's a million options, you know. Yeah. Um, that is, like, kind of a good way of railroading it forward. Um, mm. But it is complicated, yeah. Like, generally, smaller developments. You have the city of Melbourne deciding it and there's very much scope for objection there and it's all public, it's transparent. They have to account for your objections if it's a heritage issue or um, certain like, you know, there's very planner scheme issues. Um, If it's a ministerial decision, which basically means it's a larger development or they call it in, then it gets a bit Mm. um, harder to object.
3: Mm. Mm.
1: So is is this kind of unusual for um, what you guys do at Melbourne Heritage Action? Like, do you usually work on that? more municipal level
0: yeah it's usually more municipal um it's usually when you're getting state level you're involved in things like vcat and very expensive processes and Mm. um, most of the issues we face are city of melbourne
2: yeah what exactly is the um, way that you work with people do they get in touch with you or do you guys sort of like keep your ear to the ground about kind of um things that are happening in the city of melbourne that might be of interest to you,
0: yeah. It's mostly us like looking at maps and checking the planning <laughs> scheme every week because um, you can get emails out that mm. tell you. Um, uh-huh. some, sometimes people will call us or email in and say, Look, I saw this um, this piece of paper mm. on a building, can you help us out or tell us what this means? Um, mm-hmm. So, there's a bit of that too. Mm. Um, sometimes it's also just checking the financial review, seeing. <laughs> which developer has bought something for $30 million and you know that's going to be an apartment building soon. Yeah. Um, so it's all three of those things really.
2: And in the years that you've been involved, you said that it was about 10 years probably. Uh, yeah, roughly. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you seen a much of a change in the city of Melbourne in terms of like small, m- like more radical alternative spaces for people to gather Um bookstores whether it's clothing zines whatever um sort of a change in the character of the city
0: um totally i don't Mm -hmm. i don't think it's been as drastic as some places but yeah um even just from a non from a personal level i guess it's Mm. it's hard because you know you have your own view of a city and maybe your illusions are warped about what's changing what's not Mm -hmm. um but certainly um yeah you're seeing lots of pressures on buildings like say the nicholas building and which um, one's that? The Nicholas Building on Flinders Lane and Swanson. It's full of artist studios and oh. the rents are going up. Um, you mm. have cases, I guess, like lots of smaller clubs closing down. Mm. Um, things like the Theosophical Society on Russell Street. Yeah, which I was going to mention that. Um, there's now a proposal to completely knock that building down, mm. which is sad on building, Meg? many no. levels. Mm. Is it um, a
2: beautiful old building?
1: Or? Yeah, it's just really kooky. Ah. Yeah, it's like
0: a 1920s ah. office building, but they've done it all up in the 70s. and <laughs> awesome. That's the kind of value which is re- it's really beautiful and rare, like that yeah. sort of 70s interior alone. But mm. from a current heritage guidelines perspective, that's like... Basically, just rubbish because yeah. it's not intact. Uh-huh. Which is so
1: tragic because in twenty years' time, people will be like, clasping their heads and wondering mm. how we ever demolished the seventies architecture. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> just think... like they were demolishing Gothic churches and um, you know. Yeah, that's totally 1800s. one of our big campaigns is yeah. like
0: modernist. I think also, yeah, when you look at places like Guildford Lane, which used to have four or five art galleries, and now it's all just cafes and a real estate company. <laughs> So many cafes. Um, So, yeah, I don't know where where it goes from there. Um, Mm. It seems like the entire world... it's almost as if we have some kind of problem with our economic system, <laughs> just try beyond the realm what? of MHA. I think it's um, good we got Tristan in today when I Kevin in, was. I running. am in 3CR, so I can <laughs> yeah, say that. You absolutely can. Um, it's wonderful. But yeah, like it's a problem worldwide, and hopefully Melbourne is going to do a better job of retaining those places than other places.
2: Yeah, because there are a lot of passionate people. I was just and thinking, and such creative culture as well, such, such creativity. Yeah, and I was just thinking as a sideline while you were um, s- explaining all these different buildings. If you guys ever need to fundraise, you should do it tour you should like take people around the city and be like check out this building before it gets demolished you know all of the yeah. ones well yeah. we
0: um we don't really have much use for funds unless it's like an extreme amount to go to a court
2: yeah
0: um but we have we've we have done a few tours i did an art tour actually cool a couple of months ago for mha going to different places that are still there and aren't nice um places like um tcb artist inc which got kicked out recently Um, because the rent doubled overnight. Is that a gallery? Mm. Um, That was a gallery, yeah. It was Was, there for quite a few years, um, mainly for VCA students. In Chinatown, it was up this rusty staircase um, in this old laboratory looking sort of upper floor. Mm, Cool. So that's the kind of case where I I can't see that space being used for anything else, but because of the way land taxes work and Mm. it's it's more convenient for a person who's bought a building to sell something empty um, Mm. because actually – um, goes a bit beyond the scope of heritage, but I believe it's actually very hard for owners to lower rents at all, um, mm. because once you do that, um, you're behind the market. essentially yeah, you can't in What you can sell affect the worth of the yeah. property.
1: Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like there is this really clear link between having older spaces, heritage spaces, and having really creative businesses in Completely, the city. Completely. Yeah.
0: Mm. And yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that until they look around them and they're in this old building and it hits them. Yeah.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it would be extremely sad if Melbourne's kind of creative culture suffered from the lack of heritage protection. Do mm. you know any cities that have um, managed that really well? Uh, off the top of your head? Not <laughs> off
0: the top of my head, no. Um, They're generally cities that just um go through periods of boom and bust. I mean, the reason Melbourne has that in the city centre itself is because of our economy in the yeah. 80s and 90s was pretty much gone in the manufacturing districts like flinders lane mm. so it is this kind of like cycle i think melbourne yeah. being called the world's most livable city is not helping um, <laughs> because it just it, it just attracts you know um, prices going up really yeah, yeah so like that. there are certain cities i think that have cultural precinct overlays that they're trying particularly in europe mm. i don't know how well those are working um mm. and i i don't know if legislation mm. is the best way in terms of like saying you have to keep this building a certain way Mm. um but i do actually think that heritage legislation in a sense does that because if for instance you heritage list a theater there's only a few uses for a theater right if you have to keep the stage intact
2: yeah that's a really good point um let's just take a little break we'll have a couple of uh community service announcements and we'll come back and maybe we'll be able to ask you about the apple store going into fed square if you have any thoughts on
0: that all
3: right
2: cool
0: 3CR Radiothon 2018, fight for your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on
2: air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference
0: and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call... 3 or donate online at 3CR.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June 2nd. Tickets available through tickiboo.com.au. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter.
1: The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective, and the Victorian state government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. The Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter.
2: So you're here on City Limits on 3CR. Um, I'm Megan, I'm here with Eugenia Subchenko and also we're joined in the studio by Tristan Davies from Melbourne Heritage Action. Before the break we said that we would um, give, give Tristan a surprise question which he's (laughs) willing to talk about, which is the uh, Apple store going in at uh, Fed Square. Yep. Yeah. So how does Melbourne Heritage Action feel about that move?
0: Um, We don't like it. Yep. (laughs) Um, That's like a, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, there's two, there's two issues there. There's the Apple itself and should there be... Um, large corporations in the Federation Square, right? Um, which I think is a nuanced argument really because mm. it is, it's partly a commercial space but mm. it's very different use of space. Mm-hmm. I think the heritage issue is interesting because we've looked at a few cases uh, in the last couple of years where the city of Melbourne, who's actually in the last few years, I think partly because of our advocacy over a decade, um, have really been picking up the slack and they're doing more... Studies So they have actually listed a few postmodern buildings, like the Melbourne Terrace Apartments opposite the markets, which are from 94. So I think Fed Square is in that category, much like Art Deco was a few years ago, where it's it's not old enough to be considered heritage by a lot of people. But it's, Mm. yeah, um, it's it's just in that it's too old to be... Relevant mm. to contemporary needs, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, I think Federation Square definitely has a strong case for being a heritage place and definitely for social significance. Um, mm. Despite some people, you know, not being on board with this aesthetic still, um, mm-hmm. partly because of I think shock jocks on other radio stations that fueled that in the beginning. Um, yeah, because
2: in the beginning it was a kind of a contentious yeah, design. very contentious. It yeah. was voted
0: the ugliest building in the city. Mm. But I believe just a couple of years ago it was there was another poll and it was voted as the most valued um, mm. contemporary space in Australia. Is there mm.
2: any kind of legislative protection for cultural spaces? No. Okay, so mm. there is for the heritage aspect but not for the cultural heritage.
0: No, and um, cultural heritage should fall under heritage. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, at a state level there is one mechanism – for listing, which is cultural, but it has to be applied in the context of other things like architecture. Right. Um, so the city of Melbourne now, in their recent, the way they're looking at listing new buildings and things, are actually taking a lot of cultural um, significance into effect. At least the the people doing the studies. Mm. Um, they're also looking more at Aboriginal cultural significance which in really the important. built landscape mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it's not it's not quite there yet. It's like a progress of getting that. In. Mm. And I think with you know uh, the change in mayors as well, it might hopefully improve. Although yes. Sally uh, Kapp has said she's very much pro Apple, for instance.
2: Mm. Yeah, she's been one of the she as a candidate. She said yeah, she's she for was for the Apple Store, the one. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So I think I think it's probably going to happen, but it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's a very intact architectural statement, which yeah. is one thing. Mm-hmm. And um. Yeah just the 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 change in use I think is going to be quite catastrophic Traumatic, really. Yeah.
1: It seems like from what you were saying just now there's a real gap in in how we look at heritage in that there doesn't seem to be any facility to say to look at contemporary places that have been built you know in the last 20 years and say okay this is actually really valuable it's almost like we've got to wait 50 years until it's under threat of demolition and say oh okay now it's significant now we can save it.
0: Yeah when it's almost too late. Yeah. Um it Because it's like really about how the heritage heritage profession, which controls all of these things through doing the studies and Mm. more importantly being hired by developers to argue against studies, um, guns for hire kind of thing, Mm. view these things. Like some of them are very very much in that older style of being academic about it and Mm. saying this has to be a perfectly intact example from a textbook. Mm. And that's kind of like what I'd call the museum style of... Looking at heritage, saying we keep these things because we want something to look at Mm. with a plaque rather than a lived experience, which I think is what heritage is really about in a Mm. city like Melbourne.
1: That's really interesting.
2: And so how does the um, sort of the landscape of of organisations operate? We were discussing in the break about uh, National Trust and then obviously there's the heritage um, organisations that work with councils Mm. and stuff like that so how do these kind of break down
0: yeah it's a bit it's a bit byzantine sometimes um and a lot of people are confused about that Mm -hmm. um i guess on like a simple level uh groups like melbourne heritage action are community groups we're just a small volunteer group we do sometimes get people emailing us asking why we've demolished a building but (laughs) to explain that we're just like you know four or five people that just write letters. We have no um, demolition
2: equipment. No. <laughs> um,
0: so there's groups like ours and other groups in the suburbs and around country Victoria, which are great. Yep. Um, and then in terms of legislation, you'll essentially have a local heritage overlay done by various city councils, city of Yarra or Melbourne. Um, so they they enforce those local level protections, which are usually just like keep the front facade of a building kind of. Or streetscapes, and and these are um, town
2: planners who do this work, or architects, yeah. or people uh, most, study.
0: Most councils um, will have like a, a a wing that's basically for heritage or planning, which mm. are yeah, yep. um, urban yeah. planners.
3: Right,
1: it's like that. It's like their own little niche, if I understand correctly. Yeah, like a heritage expert would at know a lot more about history than an architect would, and yeah,
0: yeah. Well, at least the city of Melbourne does, but a lot of councils can't really afford a heritage expert, so mm. that's uh, another issue. Yeah. Um, and then you have a state level protection, which is the Heritage Council and Heritage of Victoria, which essentially lists statewide significance, which is a complicated mm. um, threshold, but basically like larger landmarks and things that are important archaeologically. Mm. What's the difference
1: um, between Heritage Council and Heritage Victoria?
0: Heritage of Victoria is the sort of the, the body that... Uh, keeps the records and does, like, the work, I guess, essentially the Heritage Council meets together and votes on applications and appeals and things like that.
1: it is complicated.
0: Yeah, so you have those guys and you have the planning minister who can pretty much intervene at any time and make his own decision, um, which was notoriously bad in Matthew Guy's time um, as planning minister, where he'd call things in and say, this is ugly, basically. (laughs) And um, So he has some power to do that, less so with Heritage Victoria, who, if they stand their ground, can... Fight against that. Um. Um, And then you have groups like the National Trust of Victoria, who a lot of people think are a government body, but they're they're basically just the evolved version of community groups. They're a group that started in Australia in the 50s um, basically about colonial-era houses and things like that, saving them, and then mm. grew into a wider advocacy body and started owning their own properties. And mm. so they're kind of like a, a essentially a private non-profit organization that advocates and protects heritage.
2: Mm. And they are Australia-wide. Is that right? Or- they are. They have branches River. in
0: most states or combined branches. Mm. Um, they do have some ability where I think if th- with certain heritage council decisions and things they have to be notified or asked for their opinion mm. but um yeah they're very much just like a high level um advocacy group
1: interesting mm. yeah wow and um I mean imagine the national trust is funded through grants that come from the government is that how it works
0: I don't know if they have any government grants set for specific projects but okay. they do have bequeathments and mm. very rich members right. and membership so they have hundreds of thousands of members across Australia who pay a yearly fee, okay, interesting, um, which contributes, and then also just yeah patrons and.
2: And they do they own the pro- some properties? Or are they kind of like all They do so they own in, like
0: Tasman Terrace, their headquarters behind right. Parliament, beautiful yeah. old building that they saved from. I think it was one of their first projects that they got oh. saved from demolition for oh, an office block.
1: That would have been tragic.
0: It would have been yeah. It's you, a beautiful. You building. know the building. Yeah, um, it's yeah. that one.
1: If you're um, if you're going kind of past Parliament. Um, up past the back end of Parliament, up towards Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, uh-huh. and you on your left you have Parliament. On up ahead you have the um, big Gothic church, St Pat's, and then uh-huh. on the right there's this row of terrace houses that are really opulent, really beautiful. Ah, oh, and that's where
2: they are located. Yeah. yeah, it's a
0: beautiful building, so it's nice to get in there every time. Yep. Mm. Um, then they own you know Ripponlea and Como and those mansions you might have had a picnic at once or twice, um, <laughs> <laughs> as well as various like they own like the Iron Houses in South. Melbourne, which are pretty interesting, like these um, basically reusable houses that were imported from England in the 1840s um, for people to live in temporarily. Wow. So they do like little tours, sort of things like that around.
1: Yeah. yeah, Interesting. S- so really kind of significant
2: yeah, properties.
0: Yeah, big, ba- big mansions and estates around yeah, Melbourne okay. and Victoria.
1: Interesting.
2: Um, you mentioned before about just in passing that, that it's near a church and it reminded me that um, I know the Anglican Church and other churches are selling off. Mm. large (laughs) amounts of properties, both like um, churches, but also other properties owned by the churches. Do you know anything about that um, side of things and what might happen to these buildings, which surely would be considered heritage buildings as well?
0: Yeah, we've had a few arguments with some churches Uh or at least arms of them over the Mm. years, like the Scots Church when they um, sold off a few of their old buildings, including one on the state register, Uh some... You know, not, not incredible buildings, but a little church hall and a 1920s sort of brick. Nice streetscape, which they sold off a few years ago um, to the Westpac corporations. So and now there's a big Westpac glass box behind Scott's church, oh. which didn't isn't you know not not an amazing perspective mm. um also recently obviously a big media issue i think was like the princess mary club on lonsdale street okay which was basically sold off by the wesley church um with the the idea it's, it's paying for the restoration of the church yeah um but they did yeah. kind of let that building decay for decades um so that's yeah. a problem um there are Cases you might not, you know, think about like St. Michael's Church on Collins Street, which actually sold off part of their land to build the 120 Collins Street Tower. Oh. So that's like probably a better example of something that was set back quite a distance and it's nicely built. Um, it
1: doesn't overshadow the church too much. Yeah, but mm.
0: that's that's basically early 90s planning when it was a bit more strict and thought yeah. out. Um, mm. So yeah. things
2: have changed since then in terms of what is permissible.
0: In terms of building, yeah, it was kind of a free-for-all for a long time. That's why we saw a lot of very skinny, very tall towers, no setbacks. Mm. So uh, Richard Wynne, the planning minister, changed the plot ratios, which I'm sure you talked about at some stage.
1: Not during no. my time. Explain okay. what I mean. Um, yeah.
0: He basically made, made the law, so basically, to stop these towers that were approved under Matthew Guy, which go straight up from the street, mm. have caused wind issues and things like that on Elizabeth Street. Mm. So there's now sort of mandated plot ratios, in theory at least, where you have to set back the tower from the street a little bit.
2: Oh. Mm. That brings us to another piece of news that you found during the week, which was about public spaces. And whether you can sort of legislate on how much public space, like, you know, by meters, or whether it's more important to sort of look at um, how those spaces are actually used. So, have you come across any sort of things, like, when you say, like, it has to be set back, is there a provision for, it has to be set back and there has to be, like, space for people to use, or is it just sort of, like, purely ergonomic? Uh,
0: It's usually not public space. I think we... In the sixties, like we tried a lot of those plaza style developments, which didn't work very well. Mm. Um, there why, are
1: why not? Just out of curiosity, was it? Do you have you um, read about this? Do you know? I'm if people not. I'm not too well versed them? on why, but um, yeah, okay.
0: essentially they were windswept and mm. um, not very good public spaces. Just um, yeah, not well designed.
2: Just mm. sort of empty, sort of like corridors, basically. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so I think most of these, when when I say setback, I mean there might be ten floors of. Um, you know, building straight to the street and then the tower set back behind that, like a oh. New York style, uh, you know, oh. step back. Oh. Okay. Um, sometimes so. there's community facilities, like they might get dispensation for a larger tower if they put a gym in or a childcare centre. Mm-hmm. Um, so there they could be space there for maybe, you know, art spaces or things, but that's not part of the legislation, yeah. unfortunately. But yeah,
1: it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. I wonder if there's any yeah. connection between um, like good, vibrant public space in Melbourne yeah. and heritage because it seems like a lot of the new developments that are being built don't really do public space very well. Mm. No. So especially with something like Fed Square, to to think about demolishing part of that to create a private building, you yeah. know, mm. it's threatening one of the few public spaces we have in Melbourne that actually works. Yeah, true. It's mm.
2: a very vibrant public space isn't it? very well used. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you saw the city square, which was also not – I don't think through its history, was ever the most successful. Mm. And over years it was built up on, like, the Western Hotel.
1: Oh, mm. so was that part of the square formerly? Yeah. Like the land where
0: the, the, the In the 80s or the, the 60s, or 70s, when Ron Walker was the Lord Mayor, he knocked down a bunch of really beautiful old buildings where the city square was, like a arcade and some other pubs and things and some oh. shops. And there was basically a big square. That was the big fight. The National Trust were involved in alongside the unions when he w- they wanted to knock down the Regent Theatre as part of the square. Right. So that was a big windswept plaza from the 80s where the, the vault was and everything. And I believe in the mid-90s, it was half of it was sold to um, the Western Hotel mm. to build that postmodern-looking kind of mm-hmm. hotel there mm. where the Starbucks is. And now it's um, obviously all gone now with the Metro Tunnel Works.
1: So is that going to be – that's not going to be a plaza on top again? Cause... It's
0: going to be a smaller plaza, I think, with some – facilities for the railway station. Yeah, well. Hmm. Which is probably, you know, it's nice to have open spaces, I guess, but it wasn't the most um, used, I don't believe.
2: Well used area. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, that brings us back around to the, what was kind of the topic of the day, which was the Campbell Arcade. Yeah. And uh, I guess people can sort of keep in touch with how that's operating. I suppose you guys are on Facebook or something like that. and Yeah, if you um, look yeah. up Melbourne
0: Heritage Action on Facebook and yeah. give us a like, you can follow along. Um, cool. Hmm. You can join our mailing list at melbourneheritageaction.org.au. Okay. Um. Though it's not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> not a lot of mail. Not a lot of mail. That's no. a that's a bonus. I think sometimes yeah, <laughs> I joined some mail lists. I was like, no, too yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, like, just encourage people to go down and. Um, look at the arcade if you if you haven't seen it, if you're like me and have relatively new to Melbourne, I went yeah. there the other day. I ac- accidentally found myself there because I exited the station in the right way and I was like, yeah. excellent <laughs> and, um, and support the businesses because yeah it, I, at this stage, as far as I know, it looks like um, it, it's gonna go ahead yeah. in some form mm. and which means that that arcade is going to be closed maybe for like five or six years or yeah. something, which mm. seems like a long, long time, but I guess not in the scale of like Metro and, and no. those kind of infrastructure builds.
0: Well, I, I believe if it reopens the way they want it, it's not going to be, it's going to be maybe a McDonald's and a um, uh, news agents and a... yeah. It's going to be behind ticket barriers essentially, so yeah. not for small businesses. Yeah. Um, sadly, I think some of the businesses are already leaving because right. of the uncertainty and also because the government essentially said before the plans were even released, um, you're going yeah. um, next July. Yep.
2: And basically, so. kind of, I mean, it makes it easier for them if they can put the pressure on the businesses that are there, to mm. um to move yeah pr- early yeah then they can be like well it's just an empty arcade <laughs> <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> but um I think if we can support those businesses it's good because there's a lot of creative businesses yeah. a lot of kind of like creative community spaces and and people who've been there a really long time facing Absolutely. uncertainty and that's yeah. that's
0: true across the whole city you got to support. Mm. Small local business. things. Yeah. Um, it's not always enough when you're facing multi-million dollar businesses and uh-huh. developments and rising rents and things like that that can't really be controlled yep. that easily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You got to explore and yeah, just have a think. Maybe next time you're in your favorite bookshop or cafe or mm. um, whatever. Niche thing it is like have a look up at the ceiling, and maybe you'll be in a nice old building. (laughs) Yeah, think more about that.
2: On that note, lovely. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Well, we'll see you all next week, and Kevin will be back. Yeah, yeah. yeah, If he's happy with how we've gone, then he'll return, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Cool stuff for us, maybe. Cool. See ya.